Welcome to Soul Food, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Soul Food, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Study in First Kings. I read something this week telling about how smallpox once devastated the Mandan Indians. In 1837, an epidemic broke out among the white traders on the boat, the St. Peter's. While the boat was docked at Fort Clark, a chief stole a blanket from an infected deckhand. Officers tried to obtain the blanket back by offering the chief a new blanket, but he refused. He insisted on keeping the blanket. In about three days, the Mandans began to get sick. Things progressed until hundreds were dying every single day, and some of them were preferring suicide. When all was over, only 30 Mandans remained of a tribe once numbering 1,700, all because a blanket was stolen. Now, I think the situations in, in 1 Kings chapter 12 is something like that. Huge repercussions came from what might have appeared minor matters, such as a political discussion and a press conference. We're going to see that pig-headedness split a kingdom. Look at verse 1 with me. Then Rehoboam went to Shechem because all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. Now when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard about this, he was living in Egypt, for he was still in Egypt, where he fled from the presence of King Solomon. Then they sent word and summoned him, and Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam, saying, Your father made our yoke hard, but now lighten the hard labor imposed by your father and his heavy yoke which he put on us, and we will serve you. Then he said to them, Depart for three days, then return to me. So the people departed. In Ecclesiastes 2.18, Solomon wrote, Then I hated all my labor in which I toiled under the sun, because I must leave it to the man who will come after me. 
And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. His successor was his son, Rehoboam, who occasionally did make a shrewd decision, but for the most part, he was a very foolish ruler. At the beginning of Rehoboam's reign, a selfish decision on his part divided the nation. And during the fourth year of Rehoboam's reign, he decided to completely turn from the Lord and worship idols, and that swiftly brought the judgment of the Lord. And so it's safe to say that his reign could hardly be called successful. What life does to us depends on what life finds in us. During Rehoboam's reign of 17 years, the way he responded to situations revealed what kind of person he really was. And it didn't take long to find out. When Jeroboam asked an assembly of Israel to come with him, they just asked that he would lighten the load a little and they would serve him throughout their days. Now some do believe they should have at least waited a little while before coming with any new demands on the king. Instead, to some, what they did sounds like the first round of, neg of negotiations for a union contract. Jeroboam came with a delegation and a list of demands. Speaking on behalf of the northern tribes, it probably sounded to the new king that what they wanted was better working conditions, higher pay, lower taxes, and more vacation time. And you know what? Jeroboam approached Rehoboam the same way that many people approach God, with a long list of demands. Lord, I want good health, plenty of cash, the perfect spouse, and obedient children. We say that we are willing to serve him, but only on the condition that he offer to us better terms. The danger is that we do not fully surrender to his sovereign will, but instead insist on dictating how hard or how easy our lives need to be. We say, I will do this for you, Lord, but not that. Or we say, I will do that for you, Lord, as long as you do this for me. But of course, that's really just a way of saying we don't want God to be king after all. We would rather be the kings and queens of our own little kingdoms. But as the saying goes, he is either Lord of all or not Lord at all. Verse 6, please. And King Rehoboam consulted with the elders who had served his father Solomon while he was still alive, saying, How do you advise me to answer this people? Then they spoke to him, saying, If you will be a servant to this people today, and will serve them and grant them their request, and speak pleasant words to them, then they will be your servants always. Now these older men were his seniors in years and experience. More than that, though, they had served Rehoboam's great and wise father. They, more than anyone, would have understood the policies that were being questioned by Jeroboam and those with him in Shechem. Now, in making important decisions, we should seek sound spiritual counsel, but let's make sure that the counselors we are talking to are mature saints who are able to guide us correctly. 
the British writer Frank W. Borm said, we make our decisions and then our decisions turn around and make us. And that is so true. Sometimes we may forget our decisions, but our decisions will never forget us because we're always going to reap what we sow. And even if the path does turn out to be a detour, all we have to do is admit it, confess our sin, and then ask the Lord to lead us back to the right road, which he is always faithful to do. But today, we live in a society that values youth instead of those who have many years of experience. Now, let me just say that just because someone is old does not necessarily mean that they are wise. There are old fools as well as young fools. Old age is no guarantee of wisdom or even useful experience. Now, the young people in my life help me catch up with the present, and I help them catch up on the past so we can all stay balanced and love one another. But there is often something to garner from a lifetime of experience. I read of a group of retired friends who met every Saturday morning at a Salt Lake City deli who were growing tired of the same conversation week after week. Now, sure, in their minds, they were solving the world's problems, but they wanted to share their wisdom beyond their group of seven. Just for laughs, they set up a card table at the nearby Salt Lake City's farmer's market and told people they were dispensing free advice. They even made a banner which read, Old Coots Giving Advice. It's probably bad advice, but at least it's free. Now, to their surprise, people started showing up and sharing their problems. A lot of people. Things like, where can I find someone to love? Or, have I put in enough time at my new job to take a one-week vacation? They also address questions such as, how do I keep romance alive? He says, I always tell people the first thing you need to do is to put your phone down and talk to one another. Each Saturday, the old coots have taken on the issues of about 30 to 40 people who come by seeking their advice. It's a way for a person to get an outside opinion from somebody who has nothing to gain, said member Tony Caputo. Somebody told us the other day that we're the most popular attraction at the market. We always listen carefully and never give unnecessary advice. To be truthful, I'm not sure that any of us can claim to have much wisdom, says 69-year-old John Lesnan, but it sure has been a lot of fun. He then adds, maybe all of us old coots really do have more to offer than we thought. In our account this morning, the advice of the older men was that the king should be among them as a servant who serves. What strange advice for a king to be a servant, to serve them. What kind of advice is that? It's the kind of of advice that will one day come to full realization in Jesus Christ, who said, Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. 
For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Look at verse 8 with me. But he ignored the advice of the elders which they had given him and consulted with the young men who had grown up with him and served him. He said to them, What advice do you give so that we may answer the people who have spoken to me, saying, Lighten the yoke which your father put on us. And the young man who had grown up with him spoke to him, saying, This is what you should say to the people who spoke to you, saying, Your father made our yoke heavy, now you make it lighter for us. You should speak this way to them. My little finger is thicker than my father's waist. Now then, my father loaded you with a heavy yoke, yet I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. Alexander McLaren called this account a miserable story of imbecility and arrogance. And he was right. This story reveals that whatever gifts Rehoboam may have possessed, he didn't have the gift of relating to people or understanding their needs. Now David was a king who loved his people and even risked his life for their welfare. Now Solomon was a king who didn't serve the people, but mainly used the people to satisfy his own desires. And now Rehoboam was a king who ignored the lessons of the past and turned his ears away from the voices of the suffering people. He was really just unfit to rule. Now the descriptions of the old men and the youngsters suggest that the latter has displaced the former. A new generation has come to rule in power and influence in Jerusalem. And perhaps they had never known anything but extravagant privilege and a heavy sense of their own entitlement. Foolishly, these are the ones to whom Rehoboam now turned. Now the story of this double consultation is fascinating. It takes only two verses to relate Rehoboam's query and the advice of the older men. And their counsel was, a little restraint today will win the dissident's allegiance all their days. In short, concessions will conquer complaints. But the writer immediately gives you a news reporter scoop. Now he forsook the advice of the old men. So you already know where Rehoboam's head is and where his mouth is going to go. Rehoboam gives himself away when he consults the younger fellows who grew up with him by saying, What do you advise that we? Notice the first person plural return as an answer to these people. The king's we shows with whom he identifies. Now these younger bucks believe that nothing impresses like intimidation and nothing tames like threatening. So they give Rehoboam a memorable one-liner to use. My, fa- my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. And in case that baffled anyone, they furnished an additional, my father imposed a heavy yoke upon you, and I will add to your yoke. My father flogged you with whips, I'm going to flog you with scorpions. Well, that is relatively clear. In their view, it is no time to give the proverbial ints, but instead they should impose the royal weight of the throne and let all the people know exactly who is in charge around here. Their theory is that servant leadership 
will never work. Only a bully can handle a diverse kingdom. As one commentator observes, Rehoboam chooses slogans over wisdom and machismo over servanthood. This is not going to end well. As I often remind us, our actions always carry some sort of consequence. Did you know that the two key words in the Tower of Babel are bricks and confuse? But they are a complete inversion of one another. What do I mean? In the pride of trying to make a name for themselves by erasing the boundaries of heaven and earth, the builders of Babel instead became the everlasting symbol of confusion. I like what one theologian said concerning this, and it is that human intentions always carry the seeds of unintended consequences. All I'm saying to us this morning is we need to be very careful in the choices that we make and the advice that we accept. Verse 12, please. Then Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam on the third day, just as the king had directed, saying, Return to me on the third day. And the king answered the people harshly, for he ignored the advice of the elders which they had given him. And he spoke to them according to the advice of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people because it was a turn of events from the Lord. In order to establish his word, which the Lord spoke through Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. It's intriguing to me that Solomon's first official decision concerning the two prostitutes and the baby brought him the reputation for having great wisdom. But his son's first official decision told the nation that he was both foolish and unwise. His father Solomon had even written a book of practical wisdom from the Proverbs, one of which said, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. This is exactly what he did. Also, this is really the height of arrogance. Think about it. This young king, who has accomplished absolutely nothing, was to present himself as mightier than his father, whose greatness was internationally acclaimed. The conceit is breathtaking. Verse 15 says, So the king did not listen to the people. How different from his father, who had prayed for a hearing heart to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. I do hope that you're dismayed. The glorious kingdom of Solomon has now come into the hands of a foolish and arrogant thug. Solomon's son now answered them harshly. Rehoboam had become like Israel's ancient enemy, the Pharaohs, who responded to the Israelites' complaints by doing what? By adding to their oppression. But verse 15 also says that this whole thing was a turn of events from the Lord. Now, now make no mistake about this. God was not coercing the action. 
Rehoboam was acting freely, but his actions accomplished the sovereign will of God. On a human level, these events are the result of human maneuverings, character flaws, and factional disputes. But behind all the political maneuvering stood the certain purpose of God. Verse 15 says, it was a turn of events from the Lord. Now God is sovereign, and his sovereignty is carried out in a marvelous creativity, and yet it never overrides human accountability. And in many ways, sovereignty seems so natural. What I mean is, here's Rehoboam, unsatisfied with the moderating, conciliatory stance of his father's advisors, but his blood gets going and boiling when his peers do their wordsmithing. He likes the new concepts they're throwing around, the new terminology that's floating, things like assertive leadership and a, and a power rules ultimatum. No doubt about it. That's the way they should go. That's what Rehoboam wants to do. Yet, it was a twist from God Almighty. Now, nothing occurs here because of chance. There is no chance. God is sovereign, but still Rehoboam's decision is completely his own. This text maintains the tension between God's sovereignty and human responsibility that pervades all of the scripture. Therefore, at the same time we learn of all the practical lessons that men have to teach us, mainly by negative example, we also need to be careful not to miss the larger lesson of the sovereignty of God that always lies behind it. That's good news for us. Because in spite of all the mistakes and flounderings that we may make, God's promises concerning us are always going to come true. Verse 16, please. When all Israel saw that the king had not listened to them, the people replied to the king, saying, What share do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, Israel. Now look after your own house, David. So Israel went away to their tents. But as, the sons of, but as for the sons of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah, Rehoboam reigned over them. To your tents, O Israel, was an ancient battle cry. It was a way of saying every man for himself, or in this case, maybe every tribe for itself. Back in chapter 8, when the Israelites celebrated Solomon's temple with a feast, it says all the people went home rejoicing with words of praise for the king. However, this time, they all went home rebelling with words of contempt for the king that they will refuse to honor. How big of a deal is that? From now on, Israel in the north and Judah in the south will be a house divided. These people took up the mutinous cry that had been heard a generation earlier when a worthless man named Sheba had led the northern tribes in an attempted succession from King David. So the words that Jeroboam used in rejecting the son of Solomon sounds eerily familiar to what the people of Israel said when they were rejecting the very Son of God 
in calling for Christ to be crucified. When Pilate asked them if they really wanted him to crucify their king, what did they say? We have no king but Caesar. They also said, his blood be on us and upon our children. Now later, some of them probably came to faith in Christ, but many of them never did, and they were lost forever. We need to understand what is at stake in the decision we make for or against Christ. To serve God's true and eternal king is the way to enter into everlasting life. Through faith in Christ alone can we enter paradise. But to reject the kingship of Christ is to fall under the judgment of God. And more than that, to not choose means you have chosen against him. And so if we go our own way in life, if we always insist on having the upper hand over other people, and if we refuse to give up our foolish and selfish pleasures, if we're always breaking God's commandments and never submitting to his will for our lives, the Bible says we will never enter into the kingdom of God. And unless we repent, we will be lost forever. Now, Rehoboam did not intend to lose the larger part of his nation, but lose it he did. It is ironic that the epitome of foolish leadership in the book of 1 Kings is the son of the king whose reign began with a prayer for wisdom and whose early years showed so much of it and whose proverbs given to his son speak so much about wisdom and foolishness. Now, to be fair, Following a leader like Solomon would have been a challenging task for even the wisest of men. His 40-year reign had been marked by brilliance, but his later years of apostasy had planted landmines that could only be avoided with the greatest of care. But Rehoboam, Solomon's foolish son, plunged recklessly into the minefield, and he set off an explosion that split the nation. Think about that. One incredibly poor decision tears down in just a few days what David and Solomon labored 80 years to build. Possibly the passage's most important lesson it's how much easier it is to break up what belongs together than it is to restore what is broken. It's always much easier to tear down than it is to build up. Yet one bad decision tore apart what had taken more than eight decades to put together. It is relatively simple to break apart a nation, a church, or a family, but it sometimes is almost impossible to put it all back together again. That fact alone should make us weigh all of our actions very carefully. Verse 18, Then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was in charge of the forced labor, and all Israel stoned him to death. 
And King Rehoboam hurried to mount his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel has broken with the house of David to this day. We know from the past chapters that Solomon had drafted many people to work on his construction projects. And so Adoniram's job must have made him very unpopular. A fact that the circumstances of his death clearly illustrate. Over time, this burden became too great for the people to bear. So they asked Solomon's success for relief. Now this was the Adoniram we met back in chapter 4 who had been appointed years earlier by King David. Now, Adoniram was also known as Adoram, and you know what? We should not be surprised at all for all these things that are happening. As Samuel had warned the people that their king would do exactly these kind of things back in 1 Samuel chapter 8, if you want to go back and look at that. Now, Adoniram must have been rather old by this time, but he had been the one largely responsible for the policy at the heart of these people's complaint. And if Rehoboam sent Adoram to negotiate with the people on his behalf, he could hardly have made a poor choice. If he sent Adoram to intimidate them, he had seriously misjudged the situation. But the people at this point, they've had enough. It says all of Israel stoned him to death with stones. Wow. They went all earnest tea bass on him. <laughs> well, so much for diplomacy. But sending the slave driver to serve as his envoy was hardly the best way for Rehoboam to reconcile his adversaries. It would be like sending the head of the Ku Klux Klan to negotiate with a plantation of slaves. It just isn't going to turn out well. Well, at last, Rehoboam understood. The people are actually revolting. And we are told that King Rehoboam hurried to mount his chariot and flee to Jerusalem. Rehoboam looked at Adoram and was like, See ya, wouldn't want to be ya. He just abandoned the poor man to the mob and fled to the safety of his royal city. The bully was, after all, a coward, like most bullies really are. So to finish up, we must ask ourselves, what hope is there for the people who had too briefly been the envy of the entire world. Solomon's failure and now his son's foolishness had shattered the kingdom that had so fleetingly enjoyed unparalleled peace, prosperity, justice, and glory. However, power in unworthy hands had destroyed it all. So what hope could there be? Really, that question should be extended. What hope is there for the whole world where power is so consistently in unworthy hands, as you can see tonight on the news. The only hope of this world lies in the revolution that answered the hopes of the people of Israel, and it was a king who will be a servant and serve his people. He has taught us to value, support, and use every attempt and every kind of power to serve, not for the benefit of ourselves, but for the good of others. 
Now we look forward to the day when the one who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many, for him to come back and reign. I look forward to the day described in Revelations 5.12, which reads, Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them were myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is a lamb that was slaughtered to receive power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing. Only He is the hope of the world. Only under Him will there be full and complete reunification, not only of God's people, but of all things. Then at last, power will be in worthy hands. Let us pray. And Lord, we long for that day. The longer we are down here in a world that You said is crooked and perverse, And it's getting worse every single day. The longer we spend down here, the more we desire to be with you there. But Father, there are some people who do not know you. And I pray you would use us to reach them. That you would draw their hearts to you and reveal yourself to them. And let them know, God, that you are still a savior of this world. So Lord, bring people in our path and use us. Let the way that we live our lives cause them to wonder how we are different and give us the words to speak. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and worship.